and welcome. You're listening to In Situ Science. My name is James O'Hanlon, and this episode we get to meet Dr. Frank Kohler, who shares with us some of his life story and tells us what it's like to hunt snails from a helicopter. This episode, it's my pleasure to introduce you to a senior research scientist at the Australian Museum Research Institute and a world expert in all things to do with snails. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Frank Kohler. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for this introduction. Now you put the pressure on calling me a word expert uh, on snaily things, but I will do my best to that's, convince you that I, mean, I know. That's fair enough to, to say you're a world expert, right? <laughs> well, maybe one of some, yes. It was not the only one. So you're a, a senior research scientist here at the Australian Museum Research Institute, um, and you manage the, the malacology collections. Um, as the museum is organized, we actually have collection managers who okay. are in charge of curating our scientific collections. So they are the people who manage the collections. So I'm not a collection manager, so I'm, I'm not in, in charge of doing this. But we researchers, we actually use the collections to conduct okay. original research to address certain problems or questions that haven't been answered yet. Um, and so that's what I do. Uh, but we work very closely, of course, with collection management. So I should clarify, you used the big word malacology. So for people listening, what, what's a malacologist? Yeah. So the malacologist is a um, biologist who specializes in mollusks. Great. And mollusks are gastropoda, snails and slugs, mm -hmm. and bivalvia, which are mussels and uh, clams. Um, and then we also have the octopus. Uh, the octopuses uh, and 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 um, our, our cephalopods. Yes, cephalopods. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. So and some uh, other smaller groups, which uh, are not that um, important in terms of their biodiversity, because they are represented by relatively few species. Yeah. And so you're a, you're a gastropod. And I mainly work on gastropods. So gastropods are our slugs and our snails. I have a weird question: Are slugs and snails two separate groups, or is there lots of overlap? No, there's lots of overlap. So they are actually all snails, okay. and slugs are just snails that have lost the shell. Mm -hmm. So they have reduced it, and they are also semi-slugs, which are basically in an evolutionary intermediate zone where they are about to lose their shell maybe in the future. So they have reduced it um, to some degree, but they still have a small shell, but which often has not the same functionality anymore than mm. the proper shell, so they can't retract into it, for instance. Yeah. So it's often just uh, a vestigial structure. And um, my funny accent probably gives it away. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually a German uh, speaker, and um, in German we, we call slugs Nacktschnecken, which means nude snails. Great. And so... Um, <laughs> There is not this confusion in, in the German language about whether snails and slugs are the same thing. So it's it's actually something that is triggered by the language, by yeah, two, yeah, yeah. having two different words for somehow the same thing. Yeah, because you might think that slugs are a different group of animal altogether, mm -hmm. but they're just so slugs have evolved uh, snails. Like, yeah, <laughs> slugs have evolved several times independently in different groups from yeah. shelled ancestors, okay. both in the terrestrial and also in the marine environment. Yeah. So there are also lots and lots of marine slugs, mm -hmm. um, and in the marine environment and also in the terrestrial environment. Uh, if you wonder why did they actually lose the shell, because shell has an important yeah, function definitely. to protect protect them from predation, for instance. But these 
species maybe take up a higher risk of being predated upon um, by being more agile, for instance. So having not to carry around mm. a heavy shell also allows you to uh, explore different microhabitats. And of course, in the marine environment, then that enables you to swim, for instance. So um, there are just different evolutionary solutions to the same problem. Mm. And um, so that's what slugs do. They thought, oh, you know what? We don't really need the shell. We can avoid predation by other means. Yeah. So if you're looking for snails, if you're uh, enthusiastic about snails and you want to go looking for them, what makes good snail soil, I guess? That's a very good question. In fact, um, the good, there is something like a good snail soil. Great. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we should rather say a good microhabitat, which mm. has certain soil. And um, as you said, that snails don't like it dry too much uh, they they have a problem with maintaining the moisture level of their body so they have to be a bit careful uh, about where they actually you know forage yeah. and um, how they protect themselves from desiccation um, and so the perfect snail soil would be um, in a protected pocket uh, in a sheltered place and it, with a deep layer of humus and, and leaf litter which protects the the water in the soil from from evaporating too quickly so maintains certain moisture levels and so it's usually good soils that are also good for snails great and so whenever you're out uh, doing research you're obviously looking at snail diversity by looking at snail diversity what do you actually learn about the habitat so looking at? as it happens snails are one of the most or the, the groups of animals with the highest endemicity in Australia. That means the 99% of our species are actually only found here in Australia. And what we also know is that many species have actually relatively small distributions. Uh, as looking at the average snail pace in which <laughs> they move around, it, it's not surprising that many species have actually relatively small distribution. And another very important factor that also plays into that is, of course, their um, association with certain microhabitats. And that goes back to the soils. So they need to l find pockets in the landscape where they can endure even extended periods of drought. So they mm -hmm. can't just live equally distributed across the surface um of the country, so to say. So yeah. you have this very scattered, uh, random distribution of populations, um, which may have very, very small ranges. And so this is also translated into usually very small species ranges. So we've been working a lot in the Kimberley in Western Australia, and we found that many species have ranges which are lower than 20 meters, uh, sorry, 20 kilometers in diameter. So, so one you, species only exists one species. within this 20k. So you walk for, for an hour, let's say, <laughs> in a normal walking pace, and you're very likely to leave the, the area, the distributional range of one species and enter the range of a okay. different species. So that's going to make them pretty vulnerable then to Exactly. And that's the, I think the great value, uh, as, uh, indicators that we, that landsnails have for us, uh, in, in terms of conservation indicators is mm. because they have so small distributions. Of course, not all of them, but many of them. Um, if we make sure uh, that snails survive 
uh, out there okay. in the bush, at least the majority of species, we can be pretty confident that also all other species of animals, be it koalas, kangaroos, yeah. um, or you name it, um, have a chance of survival because most species have much larger ranges than snails. Yeah. So if the really sensitive, vulnerable guys are surviving, then they assume the more resilient ones are going to do. Exactly, that's, as well. that's the idea. And that's why we are looking into snails um, because we believe that they are very good models. Uh, that Also, uh, it's a bit like a canary in the mine shaft. Yeah. Because they are susceptible, for instance, also to alteration of their habitat is that if we know well, how well snails do in a certain environment, mm -hmm. then we, we have some understanding of how good the conditions or how bad the conditions there are in yeah. this native habitat. And so when you're doing this work, I imagine you come across lots of new species that haven't been described or discovered yet. Yeah, well, looking at these small ranges, obviously um, many areas haven't even been surveyed mm -hmm. for snails. And um, I admit that snails may not be the most attractive and most um, striking well, group of animals. <laughs> That's I like true. snails. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask the majority of people... Uh, What's the most iconic Australian organism or animal? Yeah. I guess very few would come up with a certain snail. But, um, so snails have been under the radar. Mm. That's just, and that applies to many other groups of invertebrates, especially yeah, as well. Because 99% of all species are actually invertebrate species, like snails and insects, mm. for instance, or worms. And, so that's where the majority of biodiversity is, and that's also where the majority of undiscovered biodiversity is, of course, because very few people have, have looked into that. And given snails have very small distributions, it doesn't take much yeah. to discover a new species. You just need to go to a spot that nobody has uh, gone before, yeah. uh, gone to before. And uh, in the Kimberley and also in the Northern Territory, we had some projects where we actually were capable or were able to use helicopters to survey very remote patches of land that have never been surveyed. Okay. And we I thought found you were about to say you're spotting snails from a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have to get out of the okay. helicopter and do, do some physical work in the heat, uh, like digging uh, mm. in the soil. So it's actually quite hard work. But we found, I think, about 150 new species within two years. Oh, um, okay. It's a lot. In a relatively small number of patches that we have mm -hmm. uh, surveyed. So that's a good point because we tend to think that you know, discovering new species is, is a big deal and and it, it's hard to do, but really it's just all you need is someone to look. And in this case, yes, you just need to look. And yeah. in other cases, it might be more difficult. There is no general answer to a general problem, right? So mm -hmm. many species are actually being discovered and, and because we all of a sudden realize that what we believe is one species because they may look similar, mm -hmm. uh, is in, are indeed several species. Um, so and how, that's important how do you know too. Whenever you are out there and you find two small brown looking things, yeah. how do you know whether they've been described? Or are you just that clever you can look at it and go, that's, that's new? <laughs> no, it's actually a, a complicated process. First yep. of all, you need to know what has been described in the past. So which species do we believe exist mm. and where do we believe do they occur? And then by comparing um, these known species with material that hasn't been identified yet and looking at uh, characters which go beyond just 
comparing two shells, but yeah. maybe also looking at the internal structure um, and using molecular methods okay. um, allows us then to hi uh, find new species that obviously uh, haven't been described yet, and that's what we do then. So it kind of gets to the crux of why the museum is such a great place to, to base this sort of research, because you have collections... Yes. So taxonomy is actually also in historical science. It's it's actually a mix of of, of a very many different disciplines that uh, that play out together. And the historical aspect of taxonomy is that we need to incorporate whatever knowledge has been generated in the past and yeah. whatever species has been described in the past. And often uh, species may have been described 100 or 150 years ago. At that time, people had a very different idea of what species are. That mm. is actually pre-Darwinian. So people didn't even believe or think about evolution. They th thought of species as very stable and unchangeable units. And so people looked at certain characters like shells, for instance, and said, okay, these two shells are different, so clearly there must be something different. But now, after hundreds of years of evolutionary research, we have a much more detailed understanding and a more subtle understanding of how evolution works and how species evolve from each other. So variation, for instance, can occur. We know that species can vary. If yeah, think definitely. just about hum us humans, how much we vary across, you know, um, different regions of our native yeah. habitat. And, and similar things can happen in, our, in any species. So just picking up some difference doesn't necessarily yeah. mean you have a new species. So you need to understand this in a larger context of evolution. So it's, it's like going there and, and saying that you know, blondes and redheads exactly. and brunettes are different species. Yeah. So And as we do that, we often correct previous assumptions. So that's what... Um, Taxonomic change sometimes uh, is difficult for other people to understand why do we constantly change the taxonomic system. It's because we learn more about things and we, we realize that previous ideas of, for instance, what a species is or how you delimit it or yeah. um, change. We discover new species, but we also realize that, um, for instance, species already described are actually two names for the same thing exist, and that happens quite often. Yeah, so that's the, the flip side, I guess, is that you can have a, two individuals that look identical, but that are actually different species, yeah. and that's when you get into the, the internal morphology, and you have to use that so, to, to delineate them, I guess. So we try to understand why do things or species or individuals look different, or why do they look very similar to each other, and is that similarity or difference, is that best explained by the evolutionary distinctiveness or is it something that is being explained, for instance, by the ecology? Mm -hmm. So quite often we find that not unrelated species have a very similar morphology, look very similar, simply because they lead a similar life, so they have a similar similar adaptations to their environment. Um, so, so convergent evolution. Yeah, convergent evolution. I mean, on the bigger level, it's like dolphins and fish, right? So they look yep. very similar, but they have actually nothing in common in, yep. in, in taxonomic or uh, evolutionary terms, apart from their adaptation to a similar environment. And that may also happen on a smaller taxonomic scale between different species um, that live in the same habitat. So what we found, which is quite interesting from an for an evolutionary scientist, is that in the Kimberley, um, many snails look very similar. They have very similar shells, and they were always thought to be the same species. Mm -hmm. 
because they were also found in a relatively small area. But we found that if you look at the anatomy, the anatomy is strikingly different, especially their genitalia are strikingly different. And strikingly different genitalia mean or imply that yeah. they don't reproduce with each other. So and this is the criterion for us. The biological criterion, uh, criterion is if things do not are not capable of yeah. reproducing with each other. They belong to different species. So, uh, speaking of genitals, genitals are you know kind of important to biologists, and people don't really realize that sort of stuff. So, you know, we were talking before about, about dissecting snails, and having dissected a couple of snails in my time, there's a lot of stuff inside these little snails, and, and most of it is is. It's their snail junk, right? <laughs> <laughs> the snail junk. To yes. put it delicately, so, yeah. <laughs> I think if you dissect any animal, yeah. <laughs> but including snails, what you find is that the most important organs are the digestive organs, yeah. so feeding, and the reproductive organs, and they um, represent the bulk of the interior organs. So if you open a snail, indeed. Yeah. Um, what jumps at you in the first place is um, the, their genitalia because they are incredibly large in most snails. Um, if you put it to a German, uh, sorry, German. <laughs> if you put it to a human scale, they are <laughs> massive. German um, humans are roughly <laughs> the same size, right? So snails, many snails have really massive genitalia, and, and of course they don't just have one set; they're going to have both. And then they have both sets. So at least in land snails yep. and palmonate land snails uh, are herm hermaphrodites. That yep. means they have male and female organs. So it's a dioecious species. Are there many dioecious? So for I should explain, dioecious <laughs> is the fancy word for having two separate uh, sexes, male and female. So you can hang on to that one for next time you're playing Scrabble. Um, but... Um, I'm not sure actually about dioecious. Isn't it the opposite that you have the sexes uh, uh, represented in different? Yeah, uh, as I'm saying, you have your hermaphrodites that have both yes. male and female yeah. bits, and then your dioecious okay. species where you have so, male and female. Separate. As it happens, so that's pretty rare in in snails. Hermaphrodite, oh, dioecious species. De you you name it, <laughs> <laughs> the separate sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what it means. I just <laughs> can't get my tongue to pronounce it correctly. So these dioecious species, um, they're actually common too, um, okay. but. They are mo mainly marines, marine oh, okay. snails. So um, the stock of marine gastropods is dioecious. Oh, okay. And the stock, the majority of terestrial species is um, hermaphrodites. Do we know why? Is there a reason This is a to very that? good question, and um, I should probably know a bit more about that, but I, I'm at the moment not aware why. Yeah. I think it's just... Uh, different, or as it happens in evolution quite often, um, lineages or animal, different animals find solu different solutions to the same problem. Mm -hmm. And there are costs and benefits um, connected to uh, the way how you reproduce. For instance, having two sets of genitalia is more costly because you have to maintain them and develop them so you, it, it, it yeah, comes yeah. with a cost in evolutionary terms. But it also has a benefit because every animal uh, and every individual is capable of producing offspring, not only every second animal. So, in principle, you are, you are if you are, um, go, you double your chances of yeah, finding hermaphroditic, you can actually bump out twice as many youngs, uh, potentially. To use the technical term, bump out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Okay>. yes. <No. laughs> and so, 
in terms of you know the type of snails that you find, I mean these these snails that we find in our our backyards. What are they? These sort of common garden snails. Yeah, the common garden snails. So in your backyard, most likely what you will encounter is so-called pest species that are species that were introduced mm -hmm. uh, to Australia were the first settlers who came to Australia mainly from Europe. And so there, is a, there are a number of European species which are very, very happy to yeah. live, especially in disturbed habitats. So the thing is, this is a Helix aspersa? Is that yes. what I'm thinking of? Yeah. It's not Helix anymore, so okay. <laughs> some bloody taxonomists well. have put it into a new genus. Okay. So it is Cantareus aspersum now. Okay. And so where is that from? Is that a European? That's a European species. Actually, you can find it all the way through Central and Southern Europe. Okay, so that's the one that I'm more familiar with than cutting open and looking at the inside. Yes, and they have a very interesting uh, sexual anatomy, um, something that most uh, native species don't have. Mm -hmm. They have uh, so-called love darts. Yes. So <laughs> Water love darts. Explain to us. Is that the, the technical term, the, love dart? It is a technical term. Okay. <laughs> so the very uh, complicated and intricate um, mating behavior involves, first of all, shooting love darts at each other. So if, if two um, snails start um, to uh, contemplate mating, um, one of them will uh, shoot her love star. Should I her, say her or his? You you make a choice because they could be both. <laughs> well, uh, what, what role does it play, I guess? Does it, so it actually yeah. the love darts define, are going to define which role uh, yeah, an yeah. individual is going to play during copulation. Um, they contain certain hormones which suppress the male um, bits and um, um, reproductive behavior. Yep. So if you successfully dart your partner first, then you maybe uh, act as a male, whereas your partner will act as a female. So as I should probably explain, snail mating. So they come together and this is what they call reciprocal fertilization. Yes. So they're both... And seminating each other? Um, there are different strategies as well, and I think that depends on which species you're looking at. Yep. So some people do that reciprocally. Others actually have several matings with different partners, and mm -hmm. they act as male or female um, at each of these okay. copulations. So you may act as a male in one copulation, and later on you act as a female in a different copulation. And so if you're shooting these love darts, that essentially... Uh, or tries to switch off the male bits in exactly. that other snail. Yeah, and the other snail, and your partner. So if I'm shooting love darts, then I'm probably going to play that male role yes. in giving off sperm, and the other one's going to play the female. Why, why do I want to do that? I don't know. That's um, <laughs> You're not a snail, so you may have different <laughs> ideas of what you okay. want to do. It's a bit of a, a pretty violent act almost, uh, that you, know, you, you shoot a dart, you stick it into the flesh of your partner. That dart basically prevents your partner from... Um, so they're, they're becoming, little arrows, little yes, spoony spines. Yes, really spines. Um, yes, yeah, so they are really sticking them into the flesh of their partner. Okay. I was yeah. reading something too, a while ago about a snail that has a reusable love dart. Maybe it was a slug. Oh, really? No, I think they are... Well, it I was a paper that, that came yeah, out last okay. year, I think, Maybe about that's it. a new finding then that I haven't heard of. It. I should so have sent you the, the paper. paper. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> right, it works uh, essentially hypodermically, and they mm. inject these chemicals. Okay. And, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from <laughs> love darts and sperm storage sacks and whatnot. <laughs> 
But I was wanting to ask, you know, I'm always fascinated by scientists who specialize in particular uh, groups of organisms or questions and that sort of stuff. And I'm just wondering how you became you know, a snail expert. Did you have a childhood fascination for, for snails? I wonder that myself. <laughs> it's a very complex and winding way. Yes. Um, no, I'm, I have to admit I'm, I wasn't particularly interested in snails as a kid. But what I was is I was very... In much interested in animals in general. Yeah. So I had a keen interest in all sorts of animals and plants. I, I spent a lot of my spare time in the forest, you know, uh, I had a lot of pets and I think that was basically something that was uh, very much influenced by my mother who also had that interest. Mm -hmm. So we had all sorts of pets at home uh, and wild birds and dogs and rabbits and you name it. And so this interest has never cease okay. to exist. So I have always had a very keen interest in biology mm -hmm. in a wider sense. And so I, I wanted to study biology. That was always my wish to become a biologist right. um, from childhood on. <laughs> and I was raised in East Germany. Um, and at that time, uh, everything was tightly organized by the government. So also the which study you were allowed to take up oh, really? it was exactly there and they told me uh frank we don't really need biologists that many um we have like five every year for the whole country <laughs> and if you you're so not you good enough yeah and of course you had to you know have the right family connections and um <laughs> beyond being in, politically beyond doubt and stuff like that mm -hmm. so it was not a pathway i could have gone um, down at that time. So what, what pathway did you take? How so did, how I had you to get find a replacement and I actually became a builder. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. So I, I, yeah. So that's what I learned. I took up a profession. Oh, I was an apprentice, uh, as a builder. And, and. What sort? Did you have a specialty? Are you laying bricks um, or? Carpentry I learned to lay bricks great. and do all this stuff, yes. Um, my specialty was anything underground, <laughs> so <laughs> okay. the foundations and uh, road works and yep. stuff like that. Um, so how long did you do this building? Well, program? luckily, um, the wall came down in Berlin in mm. uh, 1990, and that's basically pretty much the time when I had finished my apprenticeship. Okay. So I didn't need to continue <laughs> that profession, and I wasn't really sad. Um, and all of a sudden, there was opportunity to study biology. And so that, that changed everything and for you. And I thought, moment. okay, now. As history opens that door, I have to go through it. I have to do it. Yeah. And so that's how I got became a biologist. Yeah. And, and so you went to university in that exactly. point? Exactly. And then so what did you You went straight into studying biology? Yes. And uh, I was very much interested in conservation. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to become a conservation manager back in Germany who works in national parks or something like that. Very tricky field in every country to get a job. Um, because there are many idealistic people out there that would love to do something like that. Yeah. And of course, there's only a limited number of positions available at any time. So I learned that it would be almost impossible to find a job in that field. Mm -hmm. And so um, I thought about alternatives. And one alternative was to try to get a scholarship and uh, start a PhD project. And that's what I did. And as it happens, 
I had I found um, supervisor who convinced me that it would be not such a bad idea to work on snails at so the time a very new idea to that's me. That's where it all started then. <laughs> that's you where it all your started. PhD supervisor. <laughs> and the his, the rest is history. <laughs> and so what so you did your PhD what was that on uh, on Southeast Asian freshwater snails. Mm -hmm. So I traveled uh, a lot in Southeast Asia collecting snails everywhere mm -hmm. um, in the countryside and trying to figure out you know how many species there are, how they are interrelated, what drives their evolution for instance how do species evolve. Um, in freshwater snails, uh, organisms in general, river systems often play an important role. So uh, we were interested to look at how does the fauna of different river systems, how do they differ mm -hmm. um, across uh, larger stretches of uh, or larger areas or regions in Southeast Asia. So that's what we do, did. Mm -hmm. um, and um, eventually I had finished my PhD and I was on a couple of postdoc jobs, which are usually uh, contract position for two yep. years. Um, and I heard about that. Was, I was told that in Australia they are looking for malacologists to work on Kimberley land snails. Okay. And so I applied for that job. And that was a job here at the museum? That was the job here. And Indeed. that was seven years ago. And so this is home now. This I is guess. home now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's interesting hearing about what it was like. In Germany and how the sort of avenues open for you, particularly in biology, because uh, from for me being a biologist and looking on at different enthusiasts and stuff, I think Germans seem to be leading the charge in you know, natural history and their fascination with different things like invertebrates. Yeah, it's it's surprising. There is a strong fascination with natural history and there's a strong tradition, but I'm not sure if it's only Germans. There's actually also a strong tradition in other European countries. Mm -hmm. Um, in Germany, there's one thing that I notice differs a little bit is the attitude toward fundamental science. Okay. Uh, this is science which is not directly trying to address an imminent problem, mm -hmm. but is just trying to, uh, f you know, foster our understanding of, of the natural world, for instance, how, how do things evolve and, you know, looking at the more, at the fabric of mm -hmm. knowledge and, and improving and, and widen, um, broadening that. Um, and there's a very s strong emphasis on fundamental research in German in general, in Germany in general. Yeah. So, um, and I, I missed that, that appreciation for fundamental research in mm -hmm. Australia. In Australia, many things are very much or there is always an expectation that every research project has to immediately address a problem or solve a problem mm -hmm. almost. So let's say we, we are facing climate change. So how can we solve that? Um, yeah. and, and you need to address it. And that's important too. But I think many of these apl more applied research projects actually build on the foundation of fundamental research, which tries to understand more the processes in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, Apart from our desire to influence them mm -hmm. or to use them, and and from this fun, this fundamental research is the first step that will enable us to address many problems that we are facing at the moment or that we are going to face in the future, and we don't even know about them yet. Um, and I, I would hope that in Australia there's there's a growing acceptance that fundamental research is equally important. To, as yeah, it's a, it's a really good point that um, you know, things that don't seem like they have a, an immediate 
purpose. Mm. You're not solving any yep. immediate problems. Can be just as important in the future. It's just that it's sort of unpredictable what impact this fundamental knowledge is going to have. Exactly. And so your your fascination started with this, uh, you know, this fundamental research, this desire to just to discover and explore and understand the world around us. Uh, but now, of course, you are doing lots of stuff that is applicable Let, let's to... Let's put it this way. So we talk a lot about climate chi- change these days. Yep. And um, if you go out there and ask researchers to uh, find solutions to climate change or at least explain how it actually works, mm-hmm. uh, you would never ask a snail scientist. You would never think of uh, somebody who knows something about snails that he might be or this person might be able to contribute something. Mm-hmm. But because we did the research in snails, we understand them so well now without mm-hmm. having an immediate uh, target at the, at the, when we started with that to, to look at climate change. We yeah. actually can use the snail model now to say and try to understand and predict what the outcomes of climate change in the future might be for snails. And the snails then, of course, are only one model for wider biodiversity, for larger biodiversity. And um, that's, that's the w- value of fundamental research, mm-hmm. which, which creates knowledge that later we can use and will be applicable to problems that we haven't thought of. So it kind of takes us back to what we were saying before about them being an indicator yes. species. So you can actually use that in a predictive way and look into the future and say... Are they going to be impacted in the future? Yes. And if so, that means that probably lots of other things. Exactly. I mean, if it's, if, if something applies to the snails, it will apply to other organisms as mm. well. So we should all care a lot about snail conservation. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Not so much about pandas and rhinos and. <laughs> we should care. Well, well we, we should care about care everything. Of, <laughs> we should care about everything. That's what I think. Uh, and, and try to m- make it work. And mm. I think we can if you really want to. And so what about the, what's in the future for you? What research projects are you working on right now? So right now, uh, so we've, we, we are looking at snails in arid Australia and central Australia, uh, Alice Springs. So, uh, so desert snails. Desert snails. You don't snails. really think about snails being in the desert. Yeah. So <laughs> they, they are tough guys. Um, yeah. Imagine. <laughs> they have, they are able to survive years of drought. Mm-hmm. So what these snails do, they have actually a very exciting life cycle. Um, if it rains, whenever it does, they become active Mm -hmm. and they come out and feed and do, you know, what snails do, um, mating, um, and then they hide again. And Mm -hmm. usually the activity span uh, every year is only a couple of days. And uh, before it dries out, they bury themselves deep into the soil, which at that time is soft because it's moist, Mm -hmm. and they go pretty deep into the soil, about half a meter. And that's where they... That's a lot for a little snail. Estivate. <laughs> so they basically shut down their, um, their metam, um, what's metabolism the Metabolism. Metabolism. Yeah. So they go into hibernation. Their, they go into hibernation. They seal, they seal their, uh, shell opening mm-hmm. with an epifragm of, uh, calcified mucus. And that's where they can survive in that hibernation. They can survive from, for years. Uh-huh. So there are, reports of snails that have been collected and put in, into museum collections 
Um, museum collections, we keep, we try to keep them dry so that nothing rots. <laughs> yeah. And, um, there was in one museum, I can't remember where it was, there was a leak. And so <laughs> some of the collection got wet. And all of a sudden the snails became active. Little snail zombies and coming back to life. Snail zombies came back alive and they ate the labels because they love, you know, they have to eat something yes, and there's only paper available. Um, and these snails were in the, in the collection for at least 18 years. So they, so they sat dormant. For 18 yeah. years. So some, some desert snails are so well adapted to survive droughts yeah. that they can do that for a long time. That's a, I had no idea that they could do that. And the Australian snails can do that too. These snails are buried in the ground, come out for a couple of days every year, feed and grow and mate, and then they disappear again. So... They are actually zombies more than anything else, in a way. <laughs> Reanimated snails. Yes. And they even bury themselves, too. That's great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look, we should, we should probably wrap things up. You're, if people want to know more about your research, they can jump on the Australian Museum website, I guess. Uh, you're also on Twitter, aren't you? I am on Twitter, yeah. Yeah. But your My handle, handle is Aussie Snail. At Aussie Snails? Yes. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie the... Snails, I think. Yeah, with an S at the end. Okay. It's O-double-Z-I-E? Yes. Okay. O-double-Z-I-E. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you should know this. <laughs> Look for Aussie Snails on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> but we'll wrap things up. Thanks again for coming on, Frank. Oh, my pleasure. I'd like to thank the Australian Museum Science Festival for help putting this podcast together. You can check them out at australianmuseum.net.au. You can see more in situ science at insituscience.com or you can follow us on Twitter with the handle at insituscience. My name is James O'Hanlon. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Music